not good news this morning that there's a living hope in Jesus Christ. As is good news, your hope is not in ourselves. It is not what we can produce. It is not what happens in our circumstances. We have a hope in Jesus Christ that will never spoil, perish, nor fade. It is a hope for every single one of us. Amen. 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 Are you not glad to have had the opportunity to worship Jesus Christ this morning? Can we thank these guys for leading us today? Thank you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful for my, my brothers and sisters who led us this morning to be able to worship with my brothers and sisters, but we call ourselves that because of who you are and what you have done. That we have a hope in this life that is not dependent on ourselves or our circumstances or our culture. You are a solid foundation in whom we abide. Lord, you didn't simply tell us to worship you. We get to have a relationship with you. And so, Father, thank you for that opportunity to be able just to be in your presence, to sing songs of worship, to receive consolation from you. And Lord, would you continue our worship as we continue to move through our service. We are so grateful to be able to worship you today. In your name we pray. And we all said, amen. 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 You can have a seat where you're at. Thank you, Parker. Uh, and as we continue on in worship, we are going to continue through our tithes and offerings. You're going to find offering baskets over on the left side of your row. If you'll pass those along. This is a chance to worship, to honor the Lord with what he has given us. We give back that tithe, that first portion to him. And so for our members here, uh, go ahead and pass those down. Our ushers will come by and pick that up in just a moment. Uh, and listen, as they are continuing to do that, go ahead and grab your Bibles. And let's go ahead and jump in for this morning to Romans uh, chapter 8, or not Romans, John chapter 8, verse 31. John chapter 8, verse 31 is where we'll be uh, in just a second. Uh, we are rapidly coming to the end of our worldview series. We have been here for months now looking at a Christian worldview and really trying to figure out how should we see the world. Uh, we look to God's scripture. We look to himself to tell us who is he, who am I, how do we relate to him, to ourselves, to, the, our, our, to each other, to the culture around us. And we've taken a long time to really kind of look at all the planks of a Christian worldview. And look, we have by no means exhausted all of those facets, all of those planks. But now we've begun to turn to look at the values of the world. And we've really just got this week and next week. And we by no means can cover all of the aspects of the world. But hopefully at this point in this series, you know enough about a Christian worldview to really kind of see the differences in the values of the world. We're doing the hard work of saying, okay, I know what I believe and how I should live in this world. And that's going to help me to discern Really, what is truth and what is error? And look, that is good work. And I'm so proud of you guys for, for doing this and for sticking with it because most of us don't take the time to sit and really think through our worldview. Most people, if you ask them, could not say, oh yeah, here is my worldview, here are the planks, here is what I believe. We really just kind of float through life on assumptions, on our gut. This feels right, this seems right. And so we just kind of roll through life kind of just hoping for the best, and we really, really just assume a lot of things. But you know what happens when you assume, right? You get things wrong. I mean, that's, a, I mean, that's how it goes, right? I, I mean, but look, I, I mean, look, when you make assumptions, you're not always going to get that right, and that can actually lead you into incredible error. And, and so it's important for us to say, okay, I've done the work, I know what I believe, and now I can engage with the world that I am living in. Because here's the sad truth we all need to understand. You and I are swimming in the values of the world. It is impossible for some of those values not to get drawn into your life. 
because we are quite literally swimming in it. This is the air that we breathe. This is the culture that we live in. This is 24-7. It is broadcast to us, inundating us with these messages, both actively and passively. It is impossible for us to swim in this world of cultural values and not have some of them to get through and to get into who we are. And so it's important that we actually begin to evaluate, hey, where have I taken on the values of the world? Where have I, somewhere along the way, decided to agree with the world instead of with the Lord? And so this morning, we're going to look at the underpinnings of the major idea that is driving our world culture. The idea that's really causing most of the chaos in the world today. And we're actually going to find out that Jesus has been addressing this for thousands of years. And that's why we find ourselves in John chapter 8, starting in verse 31. Let me give you a little bit of context of where we are in this story. Jesus has been debating with the Pharisees. The Pharisees do not believe that he is the Son of God. He does not fit their picture of who the Messiah is supposed to be. And so Jesus has been arguing with them. But now he's taken a step back, and now he's talking to the Jews who have believed him. So these are not supposed to be his adversaries. These are people who have said out loud, no, I believe Jesus. And look at what happens in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anybody. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's interesting. You may have heard this phrase before, that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You may not have known that this actually comes from the lips of Jesus. But he's talking about a very particular truth. He's talking about the truth that comes in himself. This is not just any truth or generic truth or invented truth. This is the truth that is Jesus himself. But what I find interesting here is that he ends up in an argument with people who say they actually follow him. That they actually believe in him. These very people are going to be calling him demon-possessed in short order. Many of them will turn away from them. Some of them will call for his execution. But at one point they said, no, I am a follower of Jesus. Which gives us a stark warning that, look, it is possible for us to say that we like Jesus and not actually be a disciple. It is possible to say, no, I like Jesus, I'm for Jesus, but I don't literally live in a relationship with him. I don't submit to his authority. I don't grow in my relationship with him. I don't follow in his ways. I say I'm a believer, but when it really gets down to brass tacks, I'm not actually a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that should be sobering to us. Because Jesus tells them something that makes them mad. He says, listen, you, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And they instantly take offense, and they said, what do you mean? We're we're children of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anybody, which, if you know your history, is laughable. The Jews have been enslaved by everybody, like everybody. The Egyptians, their whole history is about being enslaved in Egypt, and then every major power after that has had their turn conquering Israel. Even right now, as they are having this conversation, they are a vassal state of Rome. 
When they turn to crucify Jesus, they have to ask the Romans first because they're not in control. They've been conquered. So it's laughable that they would say, we've never been conquered. We're not slaves to anybody. Jesus says, absolutely, you have been. But he's really not talking about the surface. He's not interested in their political situation. That's important, but it's not the most important thing. He's looking deeper. He's talking about a spiritual slavery. And he says, every single one of you is a slave to sin. If you practice sin, this is not simply a character flaw or a problem to work on. You are enslaved by it. You are in slavery to sin. And now you see why they're mad. Because now we're mad too. Because Jesus isn't simply saying that to them. He's saying that to us. He says the problem for us as humanity is that we are enslaved by sin. To which we say, nobody tells me what to do. No, nobody enslaves me. I am my own person. I am my, my, my own individual. Nobody tells me what to do. And instead, Jesus says, no, all of us are enslaved to sin. What Jesus is doing in this argument is that he is pinpointing the major problem for those of us, not just in America, but in the entire Western world. He is attacking the ideology that underpins all of our rebellion against the Lord. And, and today, what we would call that is this. It is radical, expressive individualism. The underpinning idea underneath all of our culture, the thing that drives the world's values, that the world that you and I live in is something we would call radical, expressive individualism. Now look, being an individual is not a bad thing at all. Expressing yourself is not a bad thing at all. That's kind of part of being human. But when you take this to a radical extreme, we now have an issue. Radical expressive individualism means this. It means that I can only find out my truth from inside myself. And the only way I can be happy is if I can express who I am. The only way I can experience life is if I, by myself, with no constraints, with no authority, with nobody telling me what to do, I have to be completely and totally free to express who I am. And then and only then could I actually have a full human life that is radical, expressive individualism. When you really dig down deep into this, what you'll find out is that this is driving everything that we do. You see, there's been a sea change over the past four or 500 years in how we think about ourselves. People didn't used to always think this way. Uh, Charles Taylor is a Catholic theologian, and in his seminal work, A Secular Age, over 900 pages, he really kind of maps this out. He's grappling with a question, and here's this question. How is it that 500 years ago, it was almost impossible not to believe in God? And just 500 years later, it's almost impossible to believe in God in the culture that we live in. How did that occur? What has happened? And he really walks through this whole process of thought of how this has occurred. You see, uh, hundreds of years ago, people knew that they were a part of a larger world. And that world could affect them. Uh, politics could affect them. Uh, famines could uh, affect them. Uh, their, their neighbors could affect them. Spiritual forces could affect them. They knew that they were a part of a much larger reality. But over a course of 100 years, something changed, and we began to think differently about ourselves. Instead of thinking of ourselves as a part of a larger whole, we began to think of ourselves as buffered individuals. Taylor calls it the buffered self. We are encapsulated. 
We are now unto ourselves. I define who I am, and nobody affects me unless I want it. Nobody influences me unless I let them. I choose everything. I choose who I'm connected to. I choose what I do. I choose what my life is about. I am completely buffered, encapsulated from the world around me. And I engage in it when I want to, not the other way around. And we have created the individual self, cut off from everybody else. This is a radical shift in ideology. This is a radical shift in how we think about ourselves. But look, nobody ever sat down and voted for this. It wasn't like we came to a point in culture where we said, hey, who wants to be radical, expressive individuals? We said, I do. And we all went to the polls and filled out the little things. And we made it like, nobody voted for this. This just kind of happened in our thought over time. Again, most people just assume this. They just drink it in. But you can hear it in the things that we say. When you hear somebody say, don't judge me. Okay, that's radical, expressive individualism. Why? Well, what's underneath that idea? No one should judge me. No one can judge me. The only person who can judge me is me. I am the only one who has the right to judge me. No authority, no culture, no anybody has the right to judge me. So, so don't judge me. You can't judge me. That's not right. I need to follow my heart. I need to follow my heart. Adam, my heart tells me the truth. My heart, I'm the only one who can really tell me what meaning in life is about. So I must follow my heart. I must be true to myself. Adam, I have to be true to myself. It doesn't matter if I'm true to anybody else, but I must be true to myself. It is the preeminent value in my life. You do you. Man, you do you. We talk about this a lot. What do people mean when they say, you do you? They're saying, hey, man, you need to express yourself and do whatever you want to do. Now, the corollary is, you got to let me do me. I got to be free to do what I want to do. So, hey, man, I'm not going to bug you, man. You do you. You do your thing. I'm not going to bug you. I'm not going to judge you. I won't get in your way. But don't get in mine. Because I got to do me. I got to be free to do things my way. I got to do what I want to do. Or how about this? God just wants me to be happy. Have you heard this before? God just wants me to be happy. I mean, so look, Adam, if this makes me happy, surely God wants that. I mean, God wants me to be happy. So it, it doesn't matter if it's going to mean I got to cheat on my husband and I got to have an affair. I mean, the kids will figure it out, right? But surely God wants this because God wants me to be happy, right? I'm not making that one up. I've had people say this to my face. In this church, okay, this is radical expressive individualism. It is seeped inside of us and it comes out. This idea that I am a person unto myself. I am beholden to no one and I make my own way in the world. I define my own reality. Now look, just like we went through the planks of a Christian worldview, let me give you the four planks of radical expressive individualism. The four ideas that are underneath radical expressive individualism. The first one is this, there is no absolute truth. What the world believes is that there is no absolute truth. We call this relativism. It's the idea that there is nothing that is true for all peoples, all places, all times. Something might be right for me, but that may not be right for you. Something might be right for us, but it's not right for them. There is nothing that is true in all places and all times. You see, you do you, right? You make up your own rules, but I get to make up my own rules. And look, I've literally been preaching about this for 25 years. This is the bedrock foundation of our culture, but it doesn't make any sense. I mean, say it out loud. It is absolutely true that there are no absolute truths. Wait a minute. You see it, right? 
It's logically incoherent. It falls apart. It doesn't work. And yet people say, hey, you can't harm anybody. You can do whatever you want, but you can't harm anybody. That is an, an absolute truth. Well, hey, A, can you define harm for me? Because people define that differently. And then B, that sounds like an absolute truth and you can't have absolute truths. This doesn't work. But the assumed idea is that there is no right and wrong. Hey, Adam, what might be true for you and the Christians or you and these people is not true for this other religion or not true for this other group of people because all truth is relative. There is no absolute right and wrong. Here's the second plank. I am basically good. I and all human beings, we are basically good. Human beings are inherently good. That didn't sound bad, right? I mean, Adam, we're good people. And again, uh, we can just assume this. We look around and we say, Adam, but I got great neighbors. Uh, some of them are Christians, but a lot of them aren't. And guess what? They're really moral people. And they do lots of really good things. They love their kids. They help me out when I'm sick. I mean, I mean, they do a lot of really good stuff. And Adam, I've seen this. I mean, if I'm on the side of the road, somebody just might stop. They don't even know me. and They're going to help me. I might just think in general, surely they're outliers and there's some bad apples. But in general, all people are good. And so we can trust them, right? See, as believers, we learn that we are sinners. We're broken on the inside. It's not just everybody else who brings sin in the world. It's me too. We do this. But the world would say, no, 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 no. You can trust everybody. Everybody is inherently good. That leads to the third plank. My feelings are truth. My feelings are truth. Different authors have coined this the age of authenticity. As they've also been kind of grappling with this shift in our understanding of our personhood. But authenticity, sincerity trumps actuality. Whatever I feel is truth. You see, I'm inherently good. So if I feel something, it has to be good, right? I would never purposely hurt myself. I would never purposely hurt other people. So if I have a feeling, it must therefore be good. I should follow it. This is why I should follow my heart. My heart would never lead me astray. My heart would never lead me down a wrong path. And so my feelings are truth. I can always trust them. And here's the fourth plank. Only when I am free can I be truly happy. Only when I am free can I be truly happy. Again, I don't know what's wrong with that one. I live in America. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is the core of what we believe. This is what our culture is built on. It's built a great nation that we're all just kind of free. And when we're free, that's what's going to make us most happy. But yeah, take that and turbocharge it turbocharge it, and this is when you get radical expressive individualism. That means there's no constraints. Nobody gets to tell me what to do. This is, this is, this is libertarianism on cocaine, all right? Look, just, just push it forward and say nobody gets to tell me what's right and wrong. Nobody gets to tell me what I can do. I must be completely and totally unconstrained. I must be free to do whatever I want to do because only then can I be happy. Only then can I have a fulfilled Life, And this is why you've seen the deconstruction of all of our authorities. We have spent a hundred years deconstructing all the institutions in our culture, whether it be government, family, uh, corporations, people, religion, uh, whatever it might be. We mistrust everything. The only authority that we trust that's left is me. I trust myself. I don't trust anybody else. I've deconstructed all of it. The only thing that's left is me, and I must be totally free. And if I'm free, that's when I will be happy, except it's not making us happy. This idea, this, these planks of radical expressive individualism, this forms the core of all the chaos in our world. 
When you begin to break down all of the different issues that you and I are dealing with in our culture, all the issues that we're dealing with in life, almost all of them can be reduced down. You're going to find these planks of radical, expressive individualism underneath. Uh, look, there are so many of these, I can't cover them all, but we're going to rapid fire go through as many as possible. Let's start with cancel culture. Cancel culture has been a huge thing over the past few years where people say, hey, listen, if you do anything that I don't like, you are canceled. Furthermore, if you've ever done anything I don't like, even if you were dead, gone 100 years ago, and I now am offended by something that you did and you didn't even know me, I'm canceling you. Okay, we can't give you a platform, you can't be popular, you can't be approved of. If you do anything that is not in accord with what I want or what I like or anything that offends my feelings, you must be canceled. We'll come at you. You are eliminated. Why? Why are we doing this? Because you hurt my feelings. And if you hurt my feelings, you have literally hurt me. You see, our feelings are truth. Our feelings are our personhood. So to hurt someone's feelings is not simply to hurt someone's feelings. It's not simply to have a disagreement or, or a, a, a difference of opinion on something. No, if I say, hey, I'm going to say something and you don't like it, this has now become a violent act. Words are now violence to people. It's not simply actual violence. Now words can be violence and we can't have that. Therefore, you must be canceled. On both sides, we do this. We cancel anybody who says anything that we don't understand or we don't like. We immediately cut them off. Why? Because my feelings are truth and you have violated my feelings. My feelings are my identity and you are wounding me. You're trying to limit my freedom and I can't have that. Therefore, you must be canceled. It's radical expressive individualism down at its core, but that's not actually, actually true. People are not actually out to get you in all of these things, and it's not actual violence. Here's another issue. What about transgenderism? Last week we talked about homosexuality. We didn't get really a chance to talk about transgenderism, and I can't even talk about it fully today, but transgenderism is the idea that someone would say, Adam, my inner feelings do not conform to my outer reality. I feel that I am a different gender on the inside than I am on the outside. And I now need to make reality conform to my feelings, not the other way around. I'm going to need to change the way I look, the way I talk, the way I act, the way I dress. I will even go so far as to have surgery to change my physical body to try to conform to my feelings. Do you see radical expressive individualism? Transgenderism cannot exist without radical expressive individualism, that my feelings are truth, that meaning only comes from the inside. It can never come from the outside. And in fact, I need the rest of the world to acknowledge what I feel on the inside. So you've got to acknowledge my pronouns. You've got to change the way you act because this is how I feel now. And I might be fluid, right? So I might be one thing one day and one thing the next. But everybody must conform to my feelings because my feelings are truth. Do you see how insane this is? We've even gone so far as to divorce sex and gender. These now are two different things. Because if I can feel differently, then my body doesn't matter. That means that sex must be different from my actual gender because my feelings actually define who I am, right? This has gone so far to where we're even telling children now, children who haven't even hit puberty, hey, if you feel like you're trapped in a different body, we should have life-altering surgery that's going to change your life for the rest of your life with serious, irrevocable consequences, if that's the way you feel, we're just going to let you, we're, we're going to change your body. We're going to go through this life-altering surgery for you. We would not do this for our children in any other situation, would we? 
We would not look at our children and say, well, if you just be your six-year-old or your seven-year-old, if you feel this, surely we'll just change everything to meet that need. What, what is happening in transgenderism is saying, I need everybody to change reality to match my feelings, not the other way around. We don't do this in any other area of our lives, do we? Unless we're denying election results, right? Too close to home? Or at least closer? Some of you are going, I can't believe that. And you realize, oh, wait, I, I know a lot of people. Wait, what? I want the outer reality to reflect my feelings, not the other way around. This seeps in more than you think. It gets in in ways we're not comfortable with. But look, in transgenderism, you've got a whole culture now that is demanding that we respect everyone's feelings regardless of reality. Do you know who can't do this? As doctors. Because if somebody wrestling with gender dysphoria goes to a doctor, they will say, what is your biological sex? Because the drugs that you will give somebody are going to interact with every cell in your body, and every cell in your body is stamped with either a double X or an XY chromosome, and it doesn't matter what you feel. They have to treat you as your biological sex dictates in order to make you well. They don't ask about your feelings first. They say, what is the reality? And then we move forward. This is what we know to be true, but transgenderism really kind of turns that on its head. Let's talk about sex for just a second. Guys, you didn't know you are signing up for this, did you? Let's talk about sex over the course of the past 50 years. Because what's happened in the past 50 years is we have divorced sex from its context of being uh, something that binds a man and a woman together in a married relationship that's supposed to help and encourage your marriage. It's for procreation, so you build a, a family unit and you move things forward. We, 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 we have dominion over the earth. We fill the earth and subdue it. No, now we've taken sex outside of that context and we are trying to use it as we will. Birth control over the last 50 years has now made sure you can take sex outside of that context. You don't have to worry about cr procreation anymore. It's like, oh no, this is just for me. This has later given rise to hookup culture. This is tender. This is anybody who says, hey, I can have sexual encounters and it doesn't actually affect me. I'm just, I just want to have some, this is just for my personal gratification, but it's not actually connected to any deep relationship. This is how you get the normalization of pornography. Well, people say, well, it's fine. You can just watch whatever you want to watch and it, because it's just for your own gratification. This is just for you, whatever you like and whatever you want to watch. It's fine, right? And everybody says, well, surely it's fine. Why? Because we have taken sex out of this context and we have taken it and put it somewhere where it, it does not belong. And the question is, okay, with all this freedom that we have now, with all this freedom for all the rules and the taboos that used to be around sex, is it actually making people happier? And the answer is no. There's a couple researchers at the Wharton Institute, uh, based out of the University of Pennsylvania. They've been doing research on the general social survey. This is a survey that's been going on for the past 50 years where they talk about people's general happiness. And people mine this data and they do all kinds of research on it. Here's what they found out that was interesting. Specifically for women in America, women are less happy now than they were 50 years ago. Women, on the whole, across the board, across all demographics, are not as happy now as they were 50 years ago. This is during the time where there was abortion on demand, no-fault divorce has come about and is freely available. Women have more opportunities than they have at any other time in the history of America. And with all of these different things at their disposal, they are now less happy now than they were before. I thought all this freedom led to full happiness. How come it's not happening? Because radical and expressive individualism doesn't actually deliver on the promises that it gives to us. Let's talk about marriage for just a second. Because marriage has changed. Our ideas about marriage have changed. 
It used to be we said, hey, listen, marriage is a lifelong act, but now it's just basically a contract, and if you don't like it, you can get out. No-fault divorce is now the norm. It's not just reserved for egregious cases like adultery, but now it's just like, ah, we just can't make it work. It's fine. We, we can't make it work. We don't want to do it. And I got better options now, quite honestly. I got married real young, and you know what? I got better options now, so I'd like another crack at that. I'm a little bit older now, wiser now. I'd make a different choice. And, and so we're just, why don't we just, let's just do something different. And what God has joined together, man actually goes in and tries to separate. And we just divorce it. Do you know what it takes to get a marriage license in the state of Alabama right now? Used to be that when I performed a wedding ceremony, I would have to go and sign a certificate. Do you know what it takes now in the state of Alabama to be married? You go to the courthouse, they give you a form, you fill it out, and when you give it to them and they stamp it, you are married. In the eyes of the state, you are married. No vows, no promises, no commitments. In the eyes of the state, you are now legally married. It's just a contract. It doesn't mean as much as it used to. We look at marriage and we say, Adam, I'm going to make it whatever I want to. This is where you get cohabitation, by the way. Uh, some people say, well, Adam, listen, I may not even get married. We might just live together. Or at least we're going to live together before we get married. Because that's cool, right? I mean, look, that's actually going to be a, a good test case. I mean, I don't want to live with somebody and then get a divorce. And so how about I live with them and that will make sure we're good together. And then that will actually lead to a more stable marriage. Here's the really interesting thing. No major study that has ever been done has borne this out. Every single major study has shown that cohabitating before marriage decreases your chance of a lifelong marriage. Past year one, your chances of a divorce go up if you live together before you get married. That is shocking because intuitively you would think the opposite. Our world thinks the opposite. But we've now taken marriage and say, no, marriage is simply about my feelings. It's about what makes me happy. And if it doesn't make me happy, then I should get out. If it's bothering me, if it's intruding upon me, then I need to get out of this. This is because of radical expressive individualism. What about abortion? We talked about this earlier this year. Abortion can only exist in a culture with radical expressive individualism. When else would it make sense to say, this human life is inconvenient for me, therefore I should end it? I do not like this situation. I did not plan for this situation. I do not want people to know about this situation. And so I would rather terminate a human life rather than disrupt what I had intended or what was I was going to do in my life. I, I must go the, the opposite route and terminate a human life. The only way that can make sense in a culture's brain is when my personal happiness and my autonomy and what I want is the only pathway to human flourishing. And anything that put con puts constraints on me can and should be sacrificed if it's not what I want. That is radical, expressive individualism. What about social media? Social media is really an expression of this. When you look at social media, you're going to find all the planks of radical, expressive individualism, do we not? The early tech titans had this idea. They said, hey, listen, what if we gave everybody a megaphone? What could go wrong? What if we let everybody say everything to anyone at any point in time? It'll bring people together. People will encourage each other more. They'll get to experience more cultures. The, they won't be so hidebound or so tribalistic. They'll get to experience other people. We'll put all people together. I mean, people are inherently good, right? And so we let, let no constraints, no gatekeepers. We let everybody talk. What could go wrong? <laughs> Does anybody remember chat roulette? Is that a blast from the past? 
Chat Roulette came out in 2009. Uh, it was an early social media site, and this is like the very beginnings of like web chat. And what you could do is, is you could have a video chat with somebody on the internet. Well, with Chat Roulette, basically what you do is you get on Chat Roulette, you click a button, and whoever is on the site at that point, randomly, it would connect you so you could have a conversation. Play that out in your brain for just a moment. Because some people said, Adam, this will be great. You'll meet people from across the world, people you would never have met. You'll have incredible, interesting conversations. You'll learn more about yourself and the world. And I'm sure that happened in lots of ways. You know what also happened? People saw graphic sexual imagery they did not sign up for. This happened all the time. Why? Because people are not inherently good. We are a little bit good. We're also a little bit bad. We're broken, and this was an endemic problem. This is not simply true for chat roulette. This is true for Instagram, Facebook, uh, TikTok, and all these other things that are trying to keep pornography off their site. They have tons of algorithms and armies of volunteers who are forced to look at objectionable material to flag it to make sure it doesn't come through on our feed because it gets posted every single day in tons of imageries. And ideas and, and words that get thrown up here. Social media is not exposing how good we are. It's exposing how not good that we are. Furthermore, if this was supposed to bring us together, then how come we're so divisive now? How come all of our, our, our communication has gotten more toxic? How come I can feel more connected to people, or at least my, my friend count uh, or the like count says I'm more connected, and yet I feel less connected, I feel more isolated from people than I ever have been before? How come of our conversations have gotten so toxic around these different things? Well, it's because of the nature of these things. What about the Internet itself? You see, beyond just social media, think about the Internet. If we have this idea that I should be able to do whatever I want, Okay, the internet has enabled all of that. The internet now says, hey, you can tailor all music to exactly what you want. Don't listen to the radio that everybody's listening to where we're all kind of listening to the same thing. No, no, you can tailor it just to what you want. You've got Amazon now. You can buy anything from anyone, anywhere, at any time. You don't even have to go anywhere. We'll bring it to you. You don't have to leave your house for food. Used to be the only thing to do that is Domino's. Now I got DoorDash. I got Uber Eats. I can get anything delivered to my door. I can work from home. I can bank from home. I never have to leave home. I can literally tailor everything just to me. This internet that has given us so much freedom and so much opportunity has actually led to more isolation and more alienation. This thing that promised freedom is actually giving us slavery. Are you seeing a pattern with radical expressive individualism? And here's the upshot of all. Well, and then there's decreased involvement. What we've seen over the past 50 years in America is that we've been having decreased involvement in our neighbors. Whereas we used to have a porch culture, now we have larger houses with privacy fences instead of smaller houses, bigger yards with chain link fences. We now have privacy fences so we can keep everybody in. That is one of the reasons I do love Mount Laurel. Mount Laurel has an incredible porch culture, a neighbor culture that you don't actually see everywhere else. But in the vast culture around us, we're, we're getting more and more isolated inside our homes instead of connected to our communities. Robert Putnam, uh, in his seminal work, Bowling Alone, talked about how civic engagement, civic involvement has been dropping for the past 70 years. In America, we're getting more isolated. See, here's what's happening. When we give in to radical expressive individualism, far from getting more freedom, more joy, more life, more fulfillment in life, we're actually finding ourselves more anxious. 
You see, we have an epidemic of anxiety in our culture. Why? Well, guess what? When you're a buffered cell, guess who everything falls on? You. It's all on you. And while it's all on you, guess what we're going to expose you to? All of the evils of the world. Every problem of the world, every war in the world, every issue in the world. You not only just have to worry about the things that are happening in your neighborhood, you got to think about the things that are happening in your state, your nation, your world, and all of them, all at once, not just at 530. You got to do it 24 hours a day. We're going to put it in our phones so everywhere we go, it's going to continue to tell us all the things that you and I can't fix, but we've demanded to have the idea, but it's all got to be about me. When the entire world falls on your shoulders, how can you not fail to be anxious? We have invited it, demanded it, and it is crushing us. This is what the culture is doing. So what's the solution? Well, Jesus is actually telling you the solution 2,000 years ago, way before the Internet, way before America, way before the West. Look at what Jesus said. Verse 31, to the Jews who had believed him, he said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Look at verse 34. Truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Very quickly, let me give you four ways you can actually find freedom, true freedom in this life. It's this. Number one, you need to acknowledge your slavery. You need to acknowledge your slavery. This is what they did not do. This is what makes us mad. We say, I know I'm not a slave to anybody. Sometime we have to finally come to grips with the fact that we are sinners. We are not inherently good. We are broken. It's not just other people who wreak evil in the world. It's me too. It's you too. It's all of us. This is why the very first thing that Jesus tells us to do is to repent and believe in the gospel. Why do I have to repent? I have to finally own up to the fact I'm actually broken and I need help. I am a sinner and I need help. My feelings do not always tell me the truth. I do not always want the right thing. I actually do lead myself astray. Jesus, I repent. And that bothers us. But if you and I refuse to acknowledge our slavery, we will get what we ask for. Earlier in this passage, look at this in John chapter 8, verse 21. He tells the Pharisees this. He, says, he said, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Three verses later, John 8, 24. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. If we demand to have the world on our shoulders, if we demand to do everything on our own, God will do that terrible thing and allow you to have it. And it will destroy us. We will die in our sins. If you want freedom, I have to admit my slavery. Here's the second thing. I have to admit that I can't save myself. I have to admit that I can't save myself. Some people say, Adam, you know what? I've made mistakes. You know what? I, I get it. I understand that I'm a sinner. But here's the deal. I'm going to be better. I'm going to be better. I, I'm going to do things differently. I'm turning over a new leaf. And I'm going to work hard to be a better person. How's that working out? Seriously, because I believe you. In all sincerity, I believe you. I believe that you're sincere. I believe that you're going to work at it with all your heart. I believe you're going to work hard at these things. I believe that you actually can change a few things in your life. But here's what you and I need to understand. You and I cannot fix the sin in our souls. We cannot fix the brokenness deep down. We can't do it. We can try, but we will fail. You see, we need the sun to set us free. 
I can't set myself free. But there's a God who loves me. Even when I'm a sinner, I barely do that. But the Lord loves me when I'm a sinner. And in his grace and mercy that we sang about, he gives me his life. He is the only one who can set me free. That leads to the third thing. We find freedom and submission to Christ. We find freedom and submission to Christ. Now that just sounds dumb, doesn't it? I mean, listen to that. That's a paradox. How can I find freedom in submission? Adam, the whole point is to be free and to not submit to anyone. But this is the paradox of life. You see, the world offers you freedom, and when you go after its freedom, you get slavery. Jesus says, become a slave of Christ. And you know what you get? You get actual freedom. It's a paradox, but it works. Look what he says here in Romans chapter 8. Uh, or, is it, or chapter 6, you know, go ahead and put that, you know, chapter 6, verse 22 and 23. He says, now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, you see that? The fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you and I finally admit our slavery, we say, God, I can't save myself. Jesus, only you can set me free. Then we become free indeed. We have the truth that sets us free. We find a life that sets us free, a love that sets us free. I get to become who I am because I was made in the image of God for a relationship with God, but I sinned. Jesus came after me, though, died on the cross, rose again, and when I surrender to Jesus Christ, I find the life and the relationship I was always made for. I find freedom when I finally submit myself to the Lord and say, God, you're right and I'm wrong, so I will follow your ways. Even when I don't understand, I follow your ways. Why? Because your path is truth. You are truth. Your, your ways are life. And so I follow after you. True freedom is found in submission to Christ. And then here's the fourth and final thing. We find this in a personal relationship with Jesus. We find this in a personal relationship with Jesus. If you're here today and hear me saying, Adam, I just need to do better things. I just need to do the Bible things and not my things. I need to follow the Bible instead of myself. That sounds right, but it's not. Because if you just try to do this on your own, if you just try to be a better person, you'll just end up like the Pharisees. They were arguing with Jesus. No, the only way you find life is in a real relationship with him. We abide in him. Did you notice what he said here? If you abide in my words... You are truly my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He'll go on in John chapter 15 to explain abiding. Listen, abiding is to be in a living, ongoing, growing relationship with Jesus. Why? Because that's what I was made for. You're not going to get it all right. I don't get it all right. Nobody gets it all right. But I can be confident because I know the one who did get it all right. And I am in him and he is in me. And he will never let me go. And he has promised me eternal life. And so when I live in a growing relationship with Jesus, this is what actually sets me free. And so the question is, which worldview are you going to follow? Will I go along with the world and radical expressive individualism and just demand that everything be exactly how I want it, the way I want it, the way I feel, and the way I think, and what I want, and if I can just make everything exactly how I want it, then I'll be happy. You can chase that. You're going to be disappointed again and again and again. Or can I wake up, admit my slavery to sin, admit my inability to fix it, 
And instead say, Jesus, you love me when I don't deserve it. God, thank you. I surrender to you and then be transformed in a growing relationship with Jesus. That is the path to true freedom and anyone can have it. So do this one. Bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song that says, I'm going to build my life on the love of Jesus Christ. We've sung it before. The Lord's been using it in my life over the course of this year. And there's an opportunity for us to say that out loud. To say, God, I'm not going to build my life on myself, on my feelings, or what I want, or what other people say. But instead, Lord, I choose you. I surrender to you. Because when I surrender to you, this amazing flip, this transformation happens. Where in my submission, I actually get freedom. We've been running hither and yon through culture and big ideas, but I wonder if today the Lord might have opened your eyes to some things to say, wow, I've been walking with the Lord, but in this issue, I've, I've drunk in the values of the world. I've begun to accept the values of the world. I didn't even know it, but I've begun to live uh, with the values of the world. I wonder if today we just surrender those. And we say, Jesus, I surrender to you. I, I'm so sorry, forgive me, cleanse me, help me. Open my eyes that I might see and I might follow after you. God, I want to abide in your word. I want to abide in you that I might experience true freedom. The sun sets you free. You're free indeed. The sun lasts forever. You can live in him in eternal life forever. I wonder if today we just need to surrender some things or simply choose anew to say, God, I surrender fully to you. I'm going to build my life on you. So Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the life that you give to us. Thank you <laughs> for forgiveness. When we do, we go, we go astray and we, we chase after the siren song of the world. You don't abandon us. You don't just reject us in anger and frustration. You come after us. And you make a way home for us. And you transform us. And so, Father, on behalf of all of us, we've all taken in the values of the world in some way, shape, or form. God, forgive us. Show us where they are, God. Show us the places we haven't even seen yet. And may we surrender fully to you. You are the only one who has the words of life. We will follow no one else. You are the shepherd who knows our name. You know where we are, and you're the one who can bring us home. And so, Father, show us how to follow after you and abide in you today. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Stand up with me if you will. Let's sing this song of worship. You come and pray as the Lord leads you. Let's respond this morning.